Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. God is gracious to forgive and to renew the covenant with you unto himself. He has chosen you to be sons and daughters in his family. You were adopted when you did not deserve it, and you were loved when you did not love God. He has put his spirit of life inside of you to seal you for the day of judgment and as a surety for the inheritance you have in him. He has covered all your sins with blood, blood of the only begotten Son of God, who is your substitutionary atonement. Through him you now have peace with God. Through his blood you now have been given life and forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And God's people say, Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly shall you go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life both thorns and thistles that shall grow for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, 
Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. We'll turn now to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. And behold, they were bringing to him a paralytic lying on the bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. But when the multitude saw this, they were filled with awe and glorified God who had given such authority to men. If you would now please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together Psalm 32, verses 1 through 7. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Again. You'll be glad to know that I did remember that I was supposed to preach today. So, one out of two. If you would turn with me again to James chapter 5 and read one more time. And we'll see if we finish it today or not. One more time, James chapter 5, and we'll read beginning in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brothers, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion, he is merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes 
and your no-no so that you may not stumble into judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with passions like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If you would pray with me. Father, we come to your word this morning, your word that you say is powerful and active. It's like a two-edged sword. Your word that goes forth and does not return empty, and we pray that you would do that today, that you would speak to us and that your word would change and shape and cut us so that the sin is removed, that we're made like you. Lord, uh, we want to hear you today, and so we pray that you would be with us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this last passage, I, I, I treated it as an overview last week, and there, there was some purpose to that in trying to get at the example of Elijah and why and how he prayed the way that he did. If you recall, the conclusion that we came to was that Elijah in both prayers was praying in response to God's word. God said, and then Elijah prayed with wisdom, discernment, looking at the nature of the times, the very things that God already told him. And earnestly he prayed, and then God brought it forth, and the end of the story is that the earth produced its fruit. So there was goodness and blessing, and it came through the means of Elijah's prayer. So that's all good and fine, but we come to a text today that is disputed. There's a lot of consternation about how to interpret this specific text, and that tends to be the case in the church anytime you come to a passage where we're we're actually asked to do anything physically. We tend to disagree about it quite a bit. Um, and, and for some good reasons. And so I, I think, and maybe if this text caused you no consternation, my, my opening preamble will, but uh, it, it comes down to a, uh, a few reasons. The first of which is there are some Gnostic tendencies in which we want to separate body and soul. So uh, when we think about the command that the elders would come and anoint with oil in response to the call of the sick one, it gives some consternation because we've seen through history how the church has dealt wrongly with this, and wrongly on, on two sides. If you think all the way back to, to the Jews, God gave them covenant promises emblazed in flesh, and they abused them. And so then there became a disassociation between the act of circumcision and the circumcision of the heart that God was calling them to. And so we see that and tend to want to run the other way. And then we can look in modern times and see that the, the, the Catholic Church has done some very similar things. And so we tend to want to shy away from anything that's physical for fear 
that will end up in action only and with no faith and no true obedience. But the, the other side of the coin can be equally wrong. So this passage has been used to demonstrate extreme unction or last rites. That's how the Catholic Church uses it. It's also been used as the basis of many of the, the healing farms that, that exist among Christianity. And so we, we can look at that and say, well, there, there too, you don't have this, this, the same tendencies, but it ends in the, the same result. There is a, uh, a misplaced trust, so not pointed at God. And so that, that's one of the problems that we have. And yet Gnosticism, this separation of body and heart, is at its core uh, a heresy. And the, the reason why is because God made us whole. He made us as, as beings that have a body and a soul. He made us one. And the, what, what happens is when you begin to separate those two, you can see the outworking of it in our day and age. And so if you think about what happened during COVID, there was a separation of what composes a person. And so the, the person is just the, the ability to communicate their intelligence, their knowledge, rather than the person, body, and soul together, the whole package that God made. And the end outworking of that is, is the kind of understanding that produces abortion, in which the, the, that, that baby is not a person because it doesn't have knowledge or the ability to communicate, at least insofar as we can tell. And so you can see that the end, the end of that type of thinking results in nothing good either. And so that gives us some consternation. And related to that, James seems to play and color between the lines in describing sickness and salvation and, and health and, and eternal salvation. In fact, if you, if you look carefully at, at our text, he does it overtly. So in the, the, first, the first section, we're, we're going to, maybe I should back up, Verses 13 and 14, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? Let him sing praises. And then the third in this triad of commands, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. This is worked out in the, the next section. And so everything, everything else falls under this, is anyone among you sick? And there's, there's three distinct sections. Is anyone among you sick? The first is in verses 14 and 15. The one who's sick should call for the elders, and the, they should anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save him. Now notice the sick person in verses 14 and 15 calls for the elders, and the prayer saves him. Now we would normally expect that the sick person calls and prays, and the sick person is healed. But in verse 16, which is the sex, next section, therefore confess your sins together. He's looking backwards, but we have a, a slightly different situation in verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. In verse 16, it's flipped. The sinner confesses and he's healed. We would expect the sinner to confess and he's saved. And so we, we, we have in verse 14, the sick one coming and asking for prayer and he's healed. In verse 16, the sinner praying, confessing, and he's, he's healed. And so we have this mixing of temporal, so what we would think of as temporal, the health of our bodies, the life of our bodies, and, and the salvation 
that extends beyond the ages. And so that's confusing. Can, can we not draw a sharp dividing line? And part of the reason I bring this up is because Elijah, the, the encouragement we have is to pray like Elijah. And Elijah prayed in the knowledge of what God promised, what he said. And so we need to carefully try to divide what God is calling us to here, the, the kind of promise and, and, and the kinds of warnings that he gives in the text so that we know rightly how to address our Father when we're in trouble. Now, rightly understood, I think that this text has a, a great, great encouragement for us. He's calling us, and re- remember in the book of James, every kind of trial is in view. The, the, the context of the church is they've got their specific corporate trial that they're undergoing at that point in history. But every kind, all kinds of trial are in view in the encouragement that James gives us. And so here we come to the end of the book, and throughout this book he's encouraged through uh, all kinds of means to, to, for us to keep our mouth shut, to look to the Lord, to think rightly, And he's encouraged us to patience. So trust in the end result that God is working us towards. So when he gives trials, sickness, suffering, trust that God loves us, that he, the Father of lights, has created us as our children, he's implanted the word in us, and he's moving us towards this end outcome of maturity and perfection. And so even at the beginning of our section in chapter 5, be patient. The encouragement is be patient. Patience is a passive response. It's the response that you ask of your children. So look at me, trust me, and be patient. There's nothing really you can do except for wait. But the parallel passage with Elijah is expanded. There's no longer just patience, so you don't just wait like the farmer. Instead, there's something active. There's an active role that we're called to in the midst of this patience. So as we learn patience, James is encouraging us here at the end, as we look at sickness and suffering, there is an active role that we take in prayer to accomplish the goal that God is bringing. And so that's what I want to drive home today. And there's a, a, a couple of specific points that, that I want to, to get to. Hopefully we don't run out of time. Got a lot of heavy lifting to, to do. So um, so again, three sections, 14 and 15 go together. 16 then, verse 16 is a, a separate section, perhaps a se- separate situation that, that James draws out of the first sickness. He's, he looks at that, that sickness and he says, all right, call the elders, anoint with oil in the name of the Lord. This person then through the prayer of faith will be saved. And if he's committed any sins, they'll be forgiven. And then we have this transition to Confess your sins. Therefore, because of this truth that this is what God is doing, because of this promise, therefore confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, and you, so that you may be healed because the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And then verses 19 through 20, we have a third section. My brothers, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So I want to try to delineate what James is calling us to in each of these sections, and we're going to start with the end, and then we'll come back to the beginning and work our way through. So hopefully that's not confusing. And I I, I have a, a reason for that. I think the end helps to understand what James 
is after here. So verses 19 through 20, my brothers, this is general now, my brothers, if anyone among you strays, wanders, is deceived by, from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So what's he talking about? It's easy to read these verses and perhaps on one level uh, accept them and that we're supposed to call each other to repentance. But specifically, what does James have in mind? Last week, I mentioned that the word in the NSB that's translated stray. So verse 19, my brothers, if anyone among you strays from the truth or wanders, your translation may be slightly different, but that word is the word that's translated in James 1.16 as do not be deceived, my brothers. And so the situation that he's considering is one among us, so this is within the church, one among us, within the, the covenant body of God, is deceived. And he's calling on the children of God. It's a good thing to pull him back. If you pull that brother back, if you turn him around from his deception... You will have saved a soul from death, and we have to discuss whose, and you will have covered a multitude of sins. So this is, this is grand encouragement to do something. Verse 16 of chapter 1, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So what, what exactly is, is the wandering look like? And I touched on this last week, but I, I want to look at it a little bit more. So James chapter 1, look back at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. So we read Genesis 3 again, I, I think, probably back in March. I used that as a scripture reading already um, because this section in James 1 calls our mind back to the Garden of Eden. It calls, calls our mind back to Adam and Eve around the tree and Satan deceiving Eve and then Adam going along for the ride. And we see the inevitable result. And so James, in considering that, he says, cut it off at the beginning. Do not be deceived. What's the deception? What was Satan's deception of Eve in the garden? He said, well, look at this fruit. Indeed, it's good to eat, but the, the central deception was God is withholding good from you. And so take, eat, and receive the knowledge of good and evil, and you will be made like God. It's a slight twisting of the truth, but the central deception is God has withheld from you what is good and necessary for your life. My brothers, if any one of you is deceived in this kind of deception, now, if you're waiting around for a uh, dinosaur to come speak to you, someone next to you, and waiting for that kind of deception, we'll never act. But think about how this works in the church. It's, it's worked this way in our assembly. You have a, a young lady who wants to be married, and marriage doesn't come, and it doesn't come, and it doesn't come, and it doesn't come. 
And there grows then this deception, this bitterness that God has withheld what's good for me. Everybody around me has something good and I don't have it. And unchecked then that deception grows, the lust is set free, it produces sin, and the sin gives birth to death. And we've seen that happen. It can happen in lots of different ways, but think specifically about one track that can be taken. So you have this situation where the deception is, is set in. And that deception then works it out, works out in a way to grasp a hold of what God has not given. In the same way that Eve grasped a hold of the fruit and took and ate it. And that can work out in, in lots of ways. It can work out in premarital sex. It can work its way out ultimately into a lesbian marriage where you're claiming that God still loves me, but this is the good. So you've twisted what's good and taken a hold of it and eaten, and the end result is death. Now, at the end of the book of James, James is encouraging us. He says, think about that progression. You're deceived. You're standing there. There's Eve. She's deceived. And Adam is off to the side. He's not deceived. But Adam does not arrest the progress of that deception. He stands back. And so the deception works its way out, and lust, unchecked by truth, gives forth sin. And the sin produces death. And ultimately, Adam and Eve are removed from the presence of God. They're removed from the sanctuary because, starting with, that deception. So he says, my brothers, if any one of you is deceived and one turns him back, let him know what he's done. Let him know the goodness of what he's done. He saved a soul from death, and he's covered a multitude of sins. So... That progression, which in James chapter 1 is presented as inevitable. Lust gives way to sin. Sin gives forth death. It's a, it's a pregnancy conceived, and the child of death is born into the world. At the end of James, he says, now take a step back. That progression can be arrested. And it can be arrested at the very beginning when the deception sets in. And so... Watch out for one another. Now, I think about Elijah. This is the situation Elijah was in. Ahab was deceived, and the whole nation was being deceived with him so that they hesitated, looking between Baal and God. And they had a decision to make, but they were deceived in that they thought Baal could give them what God was withholding from them. And Elijah intercepted that deception through prayer. And we'll, we'll bring this back up here in a, in a little bit. But we need to see that quite strongly. That this is our role. It's easy to be deceived. And it is our job to watch out for one another and to intercept that deception, to arrest the progress, because left unchecked, the end is always death. Now, I'll have more to say about that section if there's time, which there won't be. Um, so generally, if we think about that progression, deception, 
Lust gives way to sin. Sin gives way to death. There are stages in which that progresses, and it can progress, progress quite rapidly or very slowly within the mind of a person where the deception incubates for a while, and then the lust is considered and considered and considered, and finally the sin is taken a hold of, and then that sin grows and grows and grows and grows and grows until there is death. And we can see that physically in people, but if you think about what James is telling us, we can think about the three sections then at this, this end exhortation of James that all, all start with his, his thinking about the sick person as related to those stages moving through lust to death. So here at the very end then, if we consider this man is deceived, he's, he's, he's at the beginning stage. Now, the deception works throughout from lust all the way to death, but you can arrest it at the very beginning. You don't have to wait for the deception to work its way out and lust through sin unto death before you stop the progress. He says, do, do it now. But in the sick person that we have in the very first section, that, that sickness can be looked at as the progress of sin unto death. And so you have the picture of a person that's close to death. You call the elders. So you're not assembling with the believers. You're either at home because you're too sick to move, or you're at home sick because you've been removed from the assembly by discipline. Either one can be in view then in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. And, and I think both of them are. And I'll, I'll come to why in just a minute. But is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So we have this situation where someone is sick, they're not assembling with the believers, they call to the elders, and he says the prayer of faith will save that person, and if they committed sins, they will be forgiven. So that's situation number one. Situation number two in verse 16 is backing off then a little bit. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. So no longer are the elders involved. No longer are we talking about somebody that's apart from the body, but now this is within the body of Christ. Therefore, because this is true, because, and if the interpretation is correct, if you're, because you're looking at the, the very end, the deception that's worked its way through lust to sin to death, because God is still gracious to allow intervention at the very last moment. Therefore, don't wait till the last moment. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another, and you'll be healed. And so you can, you can look then loosely at this as the progression of moving backwards from death to sin to the beginning of lust. And the call is then for the body to pray on behalf of one another, to arrest that cycle of sin that produces death, wherever it is. And the grace and mercy of God is that it can be arrested no matter where it is in that progression of futility. Now, you may not agree with me yet, and that's fine. You may not agree with me in the end, and that's okay too. But I think there's some, there's some value 
in, in looking at it this way, not to exclude, in verse 14, the one who is sick without sin. And so uh, what I want to do now is we're going to go back to verses 14 and 15 and look at the, the difficult part here and try to understand within this first context, this, this major sickness, what James, what James is calling us to and how we should view the, the anointing with oil. And so we have this sick person who's called to the elders of the church. And so th- this, is, this is major. They're, they're outside of the assembly. They have to go to their home. And then the elders are to pray for him. And as part of their prayer, James says, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And then the prayer, and it's a different word for prayer there. It's one that's normally translated vow. So you could say the vow of faith will save the one who is sick. Or this is a different word for sick, which can mean weary. So the vow of faith will save the one who is weary, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So we have suffering, which is the context of James. The sickness is a form of suffering. And the encouragement is for that sick person to call the elders. Now notice the direction of the, 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 the action. The, the one who is sick is supposed to call for the elders. Not necessarily the other way around, although if someone's sick, the elders should, should watch out for them. But that lends itself to this, this idea that perhaps something more is going on here. And when the elders come and pray, they anoint with oil. So let's take just a minute and think then about what the anointing with oil could mean. There's two words for anointing in the Bible. You really can't untangle them if you look through all of their uses. They're used in very similar ways. There's slight differences. But if you think about oil through the Bible, so the anointing with oil, it begins in Genesis so Jacob anoints with oil the, the, the pillar that he makes, the altar that he makes outside of Bethel. He proclaims with a vow that if, if the Lord keeps me and watches over me, I'm going to return, I'm going to return here and I'll, I'll tithe and praise the Lord. But more generally, as you move through the Old Testament, oil is specifically used. There's a specific mixture of oil used in the tabernacle for both anointing God's house, for lighting the lamps, which are to burn continually before him, for anointing the high priest, so oil was poured over their, over their heads. And all of those things go together. It's marking out the presence of God. This person, this house, is holy unto the name of the Lord. It's, it belongs to God. Now, if you would, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 14. And we're not going to read all of this, but Leviticus 14 is the law dealing with with cleansing a leper. And if you read carefully, you'll notice that this is probably the most complicated uh, cleansing ceremony of all of the rituals in the Old Testament. It combines bits and pieces of lots of, of different cleansings. So um, in, in the beginning, they come with, with two live birds and cedarwood and scarlet string and hyssop, and it, it, it sounds like 
the cleansing for having touched a dead person, or touched a corpse. And, and then the, the birds, one is let go and one is sacrificed, and it begins to sound like the sacrifice on the Day of, the, day of Atonement. So there's a, a cleansing for sin, an atonement that's made. But then as, as the, the ritual goes, he then sprinkles seven times the one who's to be clean from leprosy, and, and then there's a whole series of sacrifices, beginning with a guilt offering, and then a sin offering, and then a burnt offering. And as part of that guilt offering and sin offering, the blood is taken, and it's sprinkled seven times and then touched on the earlobe, the right thumb, and the big toe of the former leper. After that, the same thing is done with oil. Oil is taken on the left palm of the priest, and the right, the right thumb, the big toe, the right earlobe are all touched with oil. And it's a repeat of the, the consecration of a priest. So a priest is cleansed with blood on the right, the right earlobe, the big thumb, the thumb and the big toe, after having sprinkled its, its, the blood seven times before the Lord. And so there's this picture that almost looks like the leper is being first cleansed, so there's an atonement for sin, but then consecrated unto service in God's house. And on top of that, we have a second round with oil, where you touch the, the, the earlobe, the thumb, the big toe, over and above what's done for a priest. And I think what's... So I didn't read all of that, but I had you turn there. You, you can read it for yourselves. Verses, verses 17 and 18 will give you the gist. But I, I think what's going on here is you have someone that was cast out of God's house. So by the nature of leprosy, they're unclean. There's an association with sin that, that's... It doesn't mean that that leper was sinful, but the disease of uncleanness was associated with, with internal sinfulness. And so they're cast out of God's house. And, and after, the, after the leprosy is taken away, then they wait seven days, they're having, having been pronounced clean by the priest. And on the eighth day, all of this stuff happens. On the eighth day, they're beckoned back into God's house with these offerings and then this uh, oil anointing which looks a lot like what goes on with a priest. And so they're welcomed back into God's house. They're, they're marked out as being part of God's house. Now, if you think about James, what he says is the elders will go and anoint him with oil, and there's, there's an addendum there, in the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord, as we talked about last week, is specifically associated with God's house. It's where his name lives. So in the tabernacle, God comes and he rests upon the tabernacle and there his name lives. And when the people pray, bowing down towards the temple, they're praying towards the name of the Lord. They're, they're talking to him in the name of the Lord. And so we have this action then, in which the sick person calls and the elders come to pray and they anoint with oil. And it looks a lot... Like they're marking out this person as belonging in the presence of God. This one that's been separated, either just due to sin or due to sickness that comes from sin. And we'll, we'll touch on that in just a second. They've been separated from God's house. 
And so the elders are coming and they're anointing then with oil in the name of the Lord, saying this person belongs in God's house. They belong in the presence of the Lord. And he says then that prayer, the vow of faith will save the one who is sick. And we still have to answer what does God really promise there? So I, th I think that's what's going on. Now, there's only two texts in the New Testament that talk about anointing with oil for healing. But you can see then from the Old Testament that there is a background already in place in which the unclean who are separated from God's house are the final step before they're brought in is this anointing with oil. And throughout the Old Testament, the anointing with oil is representative of the Spirit indwelling. So the Spirit comes in the house, the name of the Lord lives there, and a fire is lit that will not turn off. Okay, so now, is it sickness or is it sin? Or is it both? In the New Testament, there is a gray line that occurs between how to understand sickness. And so, um, on the one side, we can think about the, the person of Job. He had boils all over his body. He would have been a leper, just like Leviticus 13 and 14. He would have been cast out of God's house. But why? Was it due to sin? The answer is no. It was not due to sin. And yet still, if he fell under the Levitical laws, he would have to be brought back into God's house this way having been pronounced clean, pronounced forgiven, and then anointed with oil as belonging in the presence of the Lord. And you can see the same thing then in John chapter 9. And if, if you would turn there, I think there's some, some useful terminology that will help us in, in grasping what James is up to. So John chapter, chapter 9, the disciples asked about the blind man in John chapter 9. They said, Rabbi, verse 2, who sinned, this man who was born blind, or his parents that he should be born blind? And Jesus answered and said, It was neither this man that sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Keep that phrase in mind. So the sickness was given, the blindness was given, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So it wasn't due to his sin or his parents' sin specifically, Sickness and death are a result of sin generally, but there is also a sickness in the Bible that comes directly as a result of sin. And so this is perhaps pretty easy to see when you have a, a man who's given to a lifetime of drunkenness and, and he dies of diseases associated with that. Or, or the same thing when you have somebody who's, who's reckless and he gets injured and the, the recklessness directly results in the injury. Or thinking within the New Testament, there also is in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says about the man who has his father's wife, he says, we're going to remove him from the house of God and turn him over to Satan so that his flesh may be consumed. It sounds like the end of physical sickness. And even with those in the body, that their sin was not as apparent going before them, by the time we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he says, because you did not judge the body rightly, many among you are weak and sick, and some have even fallen asleep. And so there is a sickness 
that God can give in his mercy that comes as a result of sin. So both those things must be in view here because James does not specify. For the one who is sick, what he's supposed to do, he's stuck at home, call for the elders and they'll pray over him, anointing with him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer, the vow of faith will save him and any sins he has committed will be forgiven to him. So both, both then are in view. So what's, what's going on? In James, suffering is a gift of God. Sickness can be a gift of God. Sickness is one form of suffering. Weakness can be a gift of God. So think about Paul. Actually, the same word that's used for sick in verse 14, the word estaneo, is the word for Paul's weakness. Three times he prayed that the thorn in the flesh might be removed. He was weak, and yet God answered him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power will be perfected in weakness. So three times Paul prayed. Paul prayed by faith, and his sickness, his weakness, was not taken away. So what gives? There is a sickness that ends in death. Remember back to James chapter 1, our progression. Deception, lust, sin, death. There is a sickness, a suffering that issues forth from sin pointed towards death. Now when you're in the midst of that suffering, it's not always apparent to those looking on, is that suffering issuing forth because of a specific sin, or is it general suffering gifted by God for the edification of the saints? You don't always know. But there is an orientation in which suffering can be a temptation that leads unto death. Sickness that comes from sin, when the sinner is embroiled in his sin, embedded in self-deception, is pointed to death. That's its end. And James, I believe, here in verses 14 and 15 is, is saying we can arrest and turn that sickness that's pointed towards death. And it may be that God gives the gift of physical healing because they're associated. So I had Hyde read Mark chapter 9. You remember the story of the paralytic. He comes and Jesus says to him, because his, his friends take him, and he says, because of the, you, the faith of your friends... I should remind you of the elders coming and anointing this, this person. By their faith, your sins are forgiven. That's another long discussion. We won't get to that one today. But your sins are forgiven. And then they're looking at him and they say, that's blasphemous. You can't, you can't say that. And he says, well, which one is easier? Is it easier to say, get up and walk, or your sins are forgiven? But so that you might know, rise up and walk. Be saved. And so there's, there's this overlap between his, his paralytic nature and his salvation, in which Jesus, he says, your sins are forgiven, you are saved. But so that everybody can know, I'm going to lift you up. And the, the word raise up is, is the word for salvation. It's sozo, the same word in our passage in verse 15. You are saved, lifted up. Sometimes those things go together. By God's grace, in his mercy, he will both forgive sins and lift up the sick upon the prayer of faith. But remember that the prayer of faith, the, the faithful one from James chapter 1, if you've been tracking all along, I've said this way too many times to count now, 
The prayer of faith is not answered if it's given in judgment of what God is doing. So, can we take this as a promise? Turn with me to 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 12. This is the third time Peter is going to recount what I want to point out to you, but, but this is the most detailed. So, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. Same subject as James, same, same event as James. There's a dispersion of the saints, they're suffering. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name, in the name of Christ, let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will, become, what will be the outcome? That's the same word, maturity, perfection, telos, that James uses so frequently. What will be the end for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let all those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So Peter says, and this is the third time he tells his listeners, he says, suffer is a good thing to suffer unjustly. It's a good thing to suffer for righteousness, but don't let any of you suffer because of sin. Don't do that. There's no benefit. So he says it in chapter 2, verse 19 and 20. For this finds favor for the sake of conscience toward God. A man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Okay, so we have two paths then for suffering to take. Suffering can either be due to sin. So I can, I can lose my house, get kicked out, all because I was a fool. Because I didn't obey God. And that is a form of suffering. And Peter says, what credit is there in that? Or if I go murder my brother and I end up in jail, they're suffering. But what credit is there in that? He says, don't suffer that way. How do you untangle the two? I think it's, it's easy for us to look at missionaries that, that, that die, at saints gone past that were burned at the stake, and we say, well, that kind of suffering I could rejoice in because it's clear. There's no problem saying that that is a gift from God by which he's growing his kingdom. But when we get sick, it doesn't seem that clear. When we're in the middle of it in our lives, it seems a lot murkier. Well, what is, what is God doing? I want you to think then about the example of Job that he gives us in this context. Think about it from Job's perspective. 
he's not privy to what Satan and God are talking about up in heaven. All he sees is that his life is destroyed. Everything is taken away, and he's left with boils on his skin and friends that have no encouragement. Is he suffering for the glory of Christ? The answer is yes. He didn't know why, but his suffering was for God's glory. It was pointed towards life. Now here's the encouragement. If we believe what James is saying here, there's all manner of suffering. We can, we can be sick on our deathbed, separated from the people of Christ, and it can be due to no specific sin, and yet we're all sinners. And God can be using that to work out His glory amongst the neighbors, amongst the hospital, in the church as they watch on as that person suffers patiently, looking at God, facing towards God. That person should be marked out as belonging to the people of God and His suffering is done in the name of the Lord. Even though He's not a missionary in a foreign land who's being burned at the stake for proclaiming Jesus' name, we know from Job that God works through that kind of suffering. Now here's, here's the promise though. If you suffer, if we suffer corporately or individually because of our sin, Peter says there's no credit in that. So don't do it. Don't suffer as a meddlesome troubler, as a murderer. Don't, don't point in that direction because the end is death. But when we come confessing our sins, and in verse 16, I just remind you, we'll come back to this when we finally get to the book of Luke in depth, but confessing your sins, that's, that's directed at the person against whom the sins are for. It's out loud, it's verbal. Confess your sins, pray for one another, and you will be healed. Does that mean that God will take away the suffering, even the suffering that looks like it's a direct result of the sin that's in our lives, either individually or corporately? And the answer is not necessarily. There is a promise here. The promise is that that person, the one whom the elders come to, that's called for the elders, that person, through the vow of faith, through the, the unwavering, unjudgmental, undivided prayer of faith, in which we trust God, we entrust our souls to the Creator who does what is right, that person will be saved. Is it talking just about eternal salvation? I, I think it's more than that. It's talking about the person in their suffering. So even, even if God in his wisdom chooses not to change anything about the circumstance. So you were a smoker all your life and you're dying of lung cancer. And come and, and pray and say, all right, I repent of everything. God might heal you. But if he doesn't, is that suffering the same as it was before Before repentance and prayer? And I would posit the answer is no. It's not the same. Because when God forgives and he takes away that sin, it's absolute. The suffering may look the same, but now the purpose and the nature of suffering is different. It's oriented towards life. It's now suffering that is used and called by in God's name for his glory. And so that person that suffers is marked out as in the name of the Lord, marked out for him with the presence of the Spirit. 
And it's different. It's fundamentally different. Because suffering from sin is pointless. It ends in death. It has no perfect outcome. But the sin arrested. At deception, at lust, at sin, close to death. God in His faithfulness and in His great mercy, He forgives through prayer. And He turns that suffering. So it's no longer the same suffering. It's now a suffering given graciously by God, not as a temptation, but as a trial unto life. All right. We're out of time, so I will mop up next week along with a conclusion. But I'll, I'll leave you there. This should be encouraging both to, both to the sufferer and to the body as we look out for one another. Verses 19 and 20, Know this, my brothers, if any of you is deceived, strays from the truth, and someone turns him back. Let him know that the one who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. If we watch out for one another and we're active in prayer for one another and active in confessing to one another when we sin, this is what God wants us to know. You will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That means in this progress from deception, lust, sin, death, if we arrest it here, it's not just that we'll cover in redemption a multitude of sins. We'll stop all of the sin that works out of that deception and lust, which spreads. Right? So think about Adam. He didn't do it. He didn't arrest the deception. And so he fell into it. And so the deception that gave forth to lust spread as bitterness and sin tends to spread and the death spread to Adam. And so I said at the beginning, it's unclear whose soul is saved. Is it the one that you turn from deception or is it your own? And the answer is both because sin is a danger in the people of God. Deception is a danger in the people of God. And so when, when it is arrested and turned back, God's people are healed, lifted up, and saved. If you would... Stand up and let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are faithful to your promises. We thank you that we can come to you and we can ask in faith to the God who loved us, who gave himself up for us, who created us by his word and embeds that word within us. We thank you for the promises that we read here, and Lord, we pray that you would help us in faith to grasp a hold of what you promise. Give us eyes to see all that you are leading us towards, and help us to think rightly about you and about the sufferings that you give us. Help us to put away sin in ourselves and error in one another so that we all together will overcome unto the end. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.